This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Law, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dan Moran. I'm thrilled to be here today with Jeff Kossuth. Jeff is an associate professor of cybersecurity law at the United States Naval Academy. He's the author of four books and many scholarly articles and has practiced cybersecurity, privacy, and First Amendment law at Covington and Burling. He has clerked with federal judges in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia. Before his legal career, he was a journalist for The Oregonian, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting, and a recipient of the George Polk Award for National Reporting. His latest book, just published by John Hopkins University Press, is Liar in a Crowded Theater, Freedom of Speech in a World of Misinformation, and that's what we're going to discuss today. But I also must add, this is a very, very special interview for me since I met Jeff in 1994 when he was a student of mine. And this is, you know, every teacher's dream to see their students go on to do these great things that Jeff has done. So welcome, Jeff. Thanks so much. It's really wonderful to be here and talking with you. Great. So first, I have to congratulate you on the, the simultaneous clarity and complexity of the book. So I felt like I was a student. I was your student in the best way reading this book. And I would pose the situations of the cases to my own children and ask them, do you think this is protected speech? Or what do you think the Supreme Court decided? It, it's a great tour of the ways in which people, very smart people, have wrestled with the First Amendment. So I want to begin at the end. Near the end of Liar in a Crowded Theater, you say, now this is you now, quote, I have a visceral reaction when a media commentator, litigator, or politician advocates for new speech restrictions by reflectively invoking the fire in the crowded theater, end quote. Explain why. So I have a lot of conversations with lawmakers, staffers, journalists about speech, online speech and speech regulation. It's an area that I've worked in for a while. And Often they will address things like misinformation and say, well, why don't we just regulate it? And I'll respond and say the First Amendment would not allow you to do that. And the response probably 90% of the time is, well, the First Amendment is not absolute. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Therefore, we can regulate misinformation. And to break that down, they're correct that the First Amendment is not absolute. There was really only one Supreme Court justice ever who believed the First Amendment was absolute and he's been dead for a while and nobody really agreed with him. So it's not really a controversial statement to say that there are certain things like perjury and defamation and commercial speech that receives less or no First Amendment protection. But those are narrowly defined categories that the courts have really over the years 
made sure to cabin away so so that the default assumption in the United States, unlike most other countries, is that the speech is protected. And the problem with fire in a crowded theater is that when they're saying that, they basically mean, well, I don't like this speech, so therefore it shouldn't be protected by the First Amendment. And for the past century, we've had a lot of judges who have made sure that it's not that easy for the government to regulate speech. Yeah. Ironically, you'll hear a lot of people saying, I believe in free speech, but... Yes, exactly. <laughs> However, not with those people because I don't like what they're saying. Exactly. Where did that Where did that phrase come from? Can you walk us through that? Because everybody knows the phrase "fire in a crowded theater." How, where did that originate? Yeah. So when when people talk about that, and and I will first say that there are times when you can be liable for shouting "fire in a crowded theater" falsely and intentionally, but it came from uh, a case that I think more people would say should not have been decided in the way that it was. And this was in 1919. Uh, there was uh, a part of the Espionage Act that's no longer in force that made it very easy for the government to prosecute people who were dissenting, uh, uh, particularly on issues involving military and national security. And there was a man, a Socialist Party official in Philadelphia, who was passing out a leaflet on the streets that made what I think was a pretty bad argument that the military draft violates the 13th Amendment. Uh, most people would look at that and say, this is nonsense. Uh, but he was actually prosecuted and sentenced to, to quite a long time in prison. And he challenged this all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court unanimously found that the there was no First Amendment protection. And they applied a very low test to determine whether the First Amendment uh, applied there. And the judge Oliver Wendell or the justice Oliver Wendell Holmes in justifying this conviction said, well, the First Amendment is not absolute. For, for instance, uh, you can't shout fire in a theater and cause a panic. And it was a throwaway line that he had, I think, gotten from an earlier case when a lawyer made a similar argument. But that's where it came from. So when people say you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, I say, OK, well, can you send someone to prison for 20 years for protesting the military draft? That's that. That's really where <laughs> right. it comes from. Yeah. People have the T-shirt, but they don't realize how, where, you know, where the slogan came from. <laughs> So you take the reader through a number of cases in the book that have informed our thinking about protected speech. And when I started reading, I thought to myself, wow, he has all of legal history to go through in the United States. You know, which one will he pick first? And one of the first ones you pick that gets extended treatment is about a man named Xavier Alvarez, who told a lie in 2007. So what happened with Xavier Alvarez? Yeah, so he was in uh, late 2006, he was elected to the local water district board in Claremont, California. And uh, at the first meeting of the water district board, he was asked to introduce himself as a new member. And he stood up and he said, you know, I'm a retired Marine and I received the Congressional Medal of Honor and I'm still around. And other than still being around, the rest of that was false. He uh, and for background, the Congressional Medal of Honor is the highest military honor in the United States. There are it's only been awarded to approximately thirty five hundred people and only about 60 of them are still alive. So uh, many of them were awarded in World War Two. So it was, it was a stupid lie to tell because it's very easily verifiable. You can go on the Internet and see he did not receive 
the Congressional Medal of Honor. Um, and he, but, but he told the lie. And unfortunately for him, uh, there was a recording of the meeting and double unfortunately for him, Congress just two years earlier had passed a law called the Stolen Valor Act, which said that if you lie about receiving the Congressional Medal of Honor, you can face up to a year in prison. So he gets prosecuted under this and it's clear, I mean, he violated it. There's no, no doubt because there's no requirement that he have a certain state of mind or receive a monetary benefit for the lie. It's just, if you lie about this, you can go to prison. So he challenges the constitutionality all the way up to the U S Supreme court and the court in a fractured opinion, it was a four justice plurality. You need five to be binding precedent, but then two more concurred and three dissented. Uh, the overall holding of the case is that false speech is not categorically unprotected, meaning that, uh, and, and this was up for debate until his case, there were a number of judges and courts who believed that there's no First Amendment protection for false speech. And uh, what the plurality, Justice Kennedy writing, said that we, we don't automatically say, say that if something's false, it's not protected because there's a lot of value in protecting false speech, even if the speech itself is not terribly valuable. Um, we need to leave breathing space for people to tell the truth. And some of, some of that includes protecting some false speech and this idea that we want, uh, we, we don't want the government to be this arbiter of truth. Uh, he said, we, we don't want Oceania's ministry of truth uh, harkening to, uh, to 1984. And so, so, it was a very, although it was a very narrow issue because most people don't go around lying about receiving the Congressional Medal of Honor. Um, it was a very important precedent because it clarified that the First Amendment does protect at least some false speech. And what's interesting is that you brought this up before. He didn't. He didn't lie to to. Uh, I don't think so to make money or it, to, but just to ingratiate himself with other people. Correct. It seems. Yeah, he, <laughs> he got it, nothing it out really of it. <laughs> clear. And it, it was a really weird lie because he had told it before and he had told all of these other military stories before, but he never even served in the military. So it was the it, it's I, I don't quite know what the motivator was there, but um, but the Supreme Court said it's not enough that, yes, there and Justice Kennedy made very clear there are certain things like perjury or lying to a federal agent or fraud that you can face con legal consequences for, but that's something more than just having false speech. And in fact, after this opinion, the Congress in response to the Alvarez case amended the Stolen Valor, or they passed a new Stolen Valor Act where it only applies if you lie about a military honor to receive something of value. So that's the extra bit that makes it so that it would comport with the First Amendment if you were to impose some consequences. Yeah, because you quote, I'm not sure if it was Kenny, but you quote one justice opinion by saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, where that like sometimes lies make up the fabric of our day-to-day -day life. And we say, oh yeah, that looks fine. Or no, I'm not annoyed you were late. That 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 we walk around pretending we're truth tellers all day, but we're far from that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, justice uh, or Judge Kaczynski on the Ninth Circuit, they, which 
handled the case before it went up to the Supreme Court, he wrote a very lengthy list of very colorful examples of things like telling your spouse that that outfit looks good on them, saying that you're busy that night, telling a prospective employer that they were the most brilliant person ever, and, and really giving the examples that you you know pe- people do lie, that we might not like lies, but lies do are, are part of everyday life. Yeah, absolutely. So in that chapter on Alvarez and the Stolen Valor Act, you talk about how an idea that informs the way we think about free speech, in this case, it's the the marketplace of ideas, about how that affected the verdicts. But what's interesting, and you do this in every chapter, you also talk about the shortcomings of that idea as well, right? So, So take us through that. Like, what is the marketplace of ideas idea? Like, why is that a good way to think about the First Amendment? But also, maybe what are some of the liabilities of that thinking? So the marketplace of ideas, uh, surprisingly enough, also came from Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, just about six months after he wrote about the fire in a crowded theater. So judges and justices are people. So he wrote the fire in a crowded theater opinion in late winter of 1919. And then the summer, the Supreme Court justices are off. He spent the summer at Harvard with some fairly radical free speech scholars who basically said, you know, you got this really wrong. And they educated him, had him read John Stuart Mill and other uh, really foundational theories on free speech. And there's a great book by uh, Thomas Healy, a law professor at Seton Hall called The Great Descent, which goes through Holmes's thought process from that summer. And so he came back in that fall to hear another very similar case. This was about someone distributing or a group of uh, Russian immigrants distributing uh, pamphlets that criticized the U.S. military efforts in Russia. And they were also being prosecuted. And the Supreme Court, again, affirms their conviction. But uh, this time, Holmes, joined by Justice Brandeis, dissents. And he, the, this is a case called Abrams, where it, it's the probably the most quoted dissent, most cited dissent in Supreme Court history, where he articulates this new theory of the First Amendment, uh, which he didn't use the phrase marketplace of ideas, but that's what it's best known of, which is um, that the, the best test of truth is for the ability of the idea to be accepted on the market. So the idea that you put the good speech in with the bad speech and the good speech will rise to the top. And that's far preferable to having the government tell you what you can and can't say. And that has, and in the Alvarez case, they repeatedly cited parts of this dissent and other Brandeis and Holmes continued to write dissents with this framework until it eventually became the majority thinking on the Supreme Court. And that's re- it's not the only theory of the First Amendment that the court has applied, but it's really become the most influential way that the current Supreme Court deals with the First Amendment and free speech. So that so the the idea of the marketplace of ideas is, you know, I'm I'm a reader, I'm a consumer of thoughts. I'll, I'll let the best ones rise to the top and I'll be the judge of who the public will be the judge of what's the best. But what's the matter with that that metaphor? Well, well, so like with all marketplaces, not everyone has equal access. So um, if you're if you have a TV show on cable news or if you have a newspaper column uh, or if you're very wealthy, you have a much easier 
time in getting your idea into the marketplace and having a more prominent spot on the marketplace. Um, if you're in a marginalized group, uh, if you're in a group that the media does not care about very much, it's harder for you to have a voice. Now, um, I'd say the internet has made things better and worse, but it, overall, I think in the marketplace of ideas, it's at least given people some access to have their views put out there. They might, they're not going to get as prominently featured. Uh, I mean, as someone like Kim Kardashian, who has millions of followers on social media, she has a much easier time getting her thoughts out, but there's still at least the possibility when before the internet, you didn't really have even a chance. Right. So moving on from Alvarez, I want to go to a, a, another case that a lot uh, that I assume many more readers will know about. This is 1964 New York Times versus Sullivan. So what happened there and why was that such an important decision? Yeah. So I know this is a podcast, but we're on a Zoom call. And so hanging up on my wall right there is the actual ad from New York Times versus Sullivan. Um, the, the, this is uh, an ad that ran in 1960 in the New York Times that was taken out by civil rights groups that uh, it says heed their rising voices. And what it basically does is it's a very lengthy text-based ad that's signed by a number of celebrities and uh, black ministers in the South that accuses various Southern officials and Southern police departments of mistreating uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and various civil rights protesters. And the overall gist of what they were accusing the officials of was true. So a lot of this happened, but they also got some things wrong. And that's not, there, there's no debate about that. They, they messed up for some of their facts. And so the, uh, there was uh, the local, a local uh, police commissioner sued the New York Times. Uh, not, and he also sued four of the ministers who signed the ad. But he, and he sues the New York Times uh, for defamation, saying, you know, you accuse the police of doing certain things that they simply did not do. I run the police, therefore you defamed me. And, and that, was case, Sullivan, right? I'm sorry, that was yes, Sullivan, right? That was Sullivan? That's okay. L.B. Sullivan. Okay. And it goes, uh, he sues in state court in Alabama. And it goes to um, a judge named Walter Jones, who I, I'm not saying this is hyperbole. Uh, he's a white supremacist. He wrote columns in the local newspaper uh, tout, touting the white race. Uh, he's not the type of person who you want uh, a case against black ministers to get in front of and the New York Times of all places. But he's the judge uh, who's overseeing the case. And it goes to an all white jury. And not surprisingly, uh, the New York Times loses. And it is a $4 million verdict, which is quite a bit of money in the early 1960s. So the New York Times appeals, it goes to the Alabama Supreme Court, they don't want to touch the case. And then the New York Times appeals to the US Supreme Court, and the US Supreme Court reverses the verdict and says that for a public official like Sullivan, a, a police commissioner who's elected, um, for, for them to succeed in a defamation case, which means that your reputation was harmed by a provably false statement, uh, you have to show actual malice, which does not mean that the speaker didn't like you. It means that the speaker either knew that the statement was false or recklessly disregarded the falsity 
of the statement, which is a very high bar. Uh, until this point, defamation was considered completely outside of the scope of the First Amendment. So uh, this really began a trend over the next three decades of the Supreme Court uh, bringing defamation more and more within the scope of the First Amendment. They extended this requirement also to public figures, so not just to official elected officials, but celebrities, prominent business people, uh, and they imposed other protections in defamation cases. And the idea was, I'd mentioned earlier, breathing space that the Alvarez court cited, this idea that um, for the media and for anyone to be able to investigate and criticize, talk about important people, who sh powerful people, you need to give them some breathing space because people are going to mess up. Uh, and that it, if they're intentionally doing it, if they're knowingly messing up, then that's one thing. But a simple mistake is not going to be enough to put a newspaper out of business. And it's based on this theory that uh, that self that for self-government, for us to participate in our democracy, you need to be able to have a robust discussion about the people in power. And so therefore, without, without, if the decision went the other way, then it would have had what you talk about this in the book a lot, it would have had a chilling effect where, where news outlets became terrified to publish anything. Exactly. Right. Yeah, because, and I mean, having been a journalist for seven years, <laughs> I, I never thought about, you know, well, this person's a public figure, so I'm going to maybe defame them a little more than a private figure. But it gives you that breathing space where you know you're not automatically going to have to go to court and possibly face really ruinous liability. Right. Is there now we talked about in the marketplace of ideas theory, you know, one of the I guess, for lack of a better word, the catch is that some people can have greater access to the market than others. Is there a similar kind of catch in this in the in the idea about actual malice? Um, I, I think not so much. I, I think everyone receives the protections of New York Times versus Sullivan. Um, the criticism is more and this has come from uh two current Supreme Court justices, Thomas and Gorsuch, who want to revisit Sullivan, um, they they believe that uh, Sullivan encourages reckless journalism and, mm -hmm. and that the media will really look away from factual problems and not investigate and not fact check. Um, I, I don't, I don't agree. I, I don't, again, I don't know any journalist who says, oh, that's Sullivan protected. So we're not, we're not going to actually fact check. Um, <laughs> but that, that's the big criticism of that opinion. Okay. Let's stay with newspapers for a little bit. You talk about the ideas that, again, that, that inform our thinking. What are the fair report privilege and the neutral report privilege? What are those? So the fair report privilege also is developed by Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, actually when when he was on the uh, on the highest court in Massachusetts before he joined the US Supreme Court uh, which protects the the reporting from def protects from defamation liability the reporting about um, public proceedings whether they be their court cases or statements of public officials, legislative debates, filings and court cases, where the privilege basically says that if you're the media or if you're just an everyday person and you accurately repeat what's in a public proceeding, you can't be sued for defamation, even 
if what you're reporting about ends up being false. And the, the importance for that is this idea that we want sunlight, that if you were to face liability for uh, what, so what the police said in a police report, if they were wrong, then you wouldn't report about the police. And that could really reduce people's visibility into what the police are doing. So the fair report privilege says that as long as it's a fair and accurate report of this proceeding, uh, you're going to be protected. So it's really important, uh, particularly when you're reporting about police and courts and so forth. Okay. And what about the neutral report privilege? So the neutral report privilege has not been uh, extended all that much. Uh, there have been a few courts that developed it. I, I think there's value in it. And the neutral report privilege takes the fair report privilege, and it also applies that to the statements of prominent people who are not parts of public proceedings. So if if an important uh, public interest group, for example, were to issue a report accusing uh, companies of corruption, the media would be able to report on that public interest group statement without um, w w without facing liability if that group was incorrect. Now, this actually has come up. Um, Fox has been sued a bunch of times for their uh, reporting about uh, the 2020 election and claims about voting machine companies and and. Um, Fox has been claiming the neutral report privilege because what they've been saying is, well, even though it's not part of a public proceeding, it's accusations that Donald Trump, the president at the time, and his top representatives were making. And how could we not report about that, that the public has an interest in knowing about that? Now, the courts haven't been very receptive to that, but that's at least the theory that they're promoting. Staying with libel, you have a chapter about the degree to which truth can be used as a defense against libel, right? It's I'm not libeling, I'm telling the truth, right? And in that chapter, you talk about two cases. Now, one of them involves Hamilton and Jefferson, and one involves probably the most unexpected figure in the book, which is the rapper Eminem. So you don't expect Hamilton, Jefferson, and Eminem in one chapter, but if you could take us through that those cases and what they teach us about I learned about this idea of, of truth plus or substantial truth. Yeah, so th this might be the first book to have Hamilton and Eminem in the same chapter. I am not entirely sure. But um, so Hamilton, um, after he was Treasury Secretary and left public life, uh, perhaps not in the best way possible, he, he practiced law and was quite successful at it. Um, and he represented a man named Harry Croswell, who was an allied with him as a Federalist, who published a, a newsletter, a, a periodical um, called The Wasp, which uh, really went after the Democratic Republicans and uh, Thomas Jefferson in particular. And he made a lot of uh, allegations about Jefferson, uh, including that Jefferson had... Uh, been involved in a smear campaign of George Washington, which did not go over well with Thomas Jefferson. Now, Jefferson had promoted himself as this champion of free speech and actually championed the repeal of the Federal Sedition Act, which resulted in a number of people going to prison. Um, but Jefferson also and his allies pressured uh, New York public uh, prosecutors 
to use New York state libel law uh, because New York had a criminal libel law uh, to go after Croswell because he was publishing in the Hudson Valley. Now, what's important about this and why, why this case was so important. So Hamilton ends up representing Croswell uh, at the time, the, for criminal defamation or even civil defamation, what you needed to show was that the defendant made the statement and the statement harmed the person. And uh, what, what did not matter is whether the statement was true, which right now seems crazy because that's often the biggest issue in defamation cases. But um, there was a saying from England, from courts in England in the 1700s that had carried over to the United States, which is the greater the truth, the greater the libel, which uh, so, so Hamilton was really fighting against that. So he promoted something called Truth Plus, which wasn't fully saying truth is a defense, but saying that if if some a statement is true and it's made with good motives, that it can't be the basis for a libel prosecution. And um, he the he took this case up to the highest court in New York and the court actually deadlocked. So uh, it, it was two to two. One of the justices was uh, was not able to hear the case because he actually was the pro the prosecutor arguing the case. So um, the he he didn't ultimately achieve a victory for Croswell, but. The next year, the New York State Legislature uh, passed a law that basically copied Hamilton's proposal, and then it later was written into the New York Con State Constitution, and other states adopted it. So that was Hamilton's contribution, this idea that we actually do consider the truth in uh, in defamation cases. Now, Eminem um, extended this, <laughs> surprisingly enough. So he... Um, in his first album, he, uh, in, I guess, a B-side track that didn't really get as much airplay, um, he wrote a song where he, uh, ident he, he talked a lot about a childhood bully who he named his first and last name in the song, um, in part, I don't, I don't know if this is exactly why, but it, his last name rhymed with the, with Eminem's daughter. So he was able to put both of them in the same lyric and, uh, he accused, accused him of a number of in very specific bullying incidents of pushing him down. Um, some of the, some of the song was clearly outlandish and did not happen like saying that uh the the his bully was beating him up and the principal came into the bathroom and saw him and started helping mm -hmm. uh the bully beat him up and that his mother beat him over the head with a remote control until his brains fell out of his skull a lot of things that you know did not happen um but the uh the bully who was a sanitation worker in detroit ended up um suing Mar Marshall Mathers, who's Eminem, uh, for not defamation, but for something called false light, which is very similar, saying that you um, portrayed someone in a highly objectionable and false manner. And so the case goes to a judge who uh, a, who finds, yeah, there are certain things that didn't happen. And uh, I ended up finding through court records, the depositions of Eminem, which were, and, and his bully, which were pretty interesting. Uh, and it really became clear that 
there generally was some bullying type incident. Uh, they didn't like each other in middle school, but at the same time, certain incidents that Eminem wrote about did not happen. And Eminem admitted it and said, you know, I need to rhyme lyrics and anyone looking at this would know. And so it goes to the judge and she applies what's known as substantial truth. The idea that um, as long as the gist or sting of statements are true, there could be some falsity uh, and we don't expect absolute truth. So this kind of extends what Hamilton is doing by saying there's a value in truth in the Eminem case, the judge is saying there only needs to be substantial truth. And she um, wanted to get a bit of attention. So she wrote part of the opinion in a rap song, a rap verse, but uh, which I thought made for interesting addition to the book. But overall, what the Eminem case shows is that you, you don't need to be literally accurate on everything as long as overall what you're saying is true. So, um, I mean, I'll say as a, having been a journalist, the substantial truth doctrine was actually probably even more important than actual malice in New York Times versus Sullivan, because you're going to get some little details mm -hmm. wrong. And what this does is it says you don't automatically face liability if not everything is 100% accurate. Right. It, what you just said reminded me very much of, uh, there's a, a great writer, Tim O'Brien. He, he writes about Vietnam a lot and he has a, a story called how to tell a true war story. And the whole point is, yeah, you can, you might get like this thing or that thing a little, a couple of degrees, but substantially is the story true about your experience in Vietnam. So it's the same kind of idea. Yeah. So let's move from, from rappers to books. You tell the reader about two books. There's a book called the last chance diet. And there's another one called the encyclopedia of mushrooms. And their publishers came under legal fire for negligence. So you explain in this chapter, the chapter is titled Uncertainty, why, and this is your quote, publishers do not have a legal duty to verify whether their books are accurate. Now, here's a, here's a loaded question for you. Well, why not? And, and why is that a good thing? Why is that a desirable thing? So the... The problem for both of these books, so to describe both of them, The Last Chance Diet was, and I, I actually have a copy, I, I actually have a copy of both of those books. They're both out of print, print fortunately, um, but The Last Chance Diet in particular is a totally crazy book that was written by a doctor um, in the 1970s that promoted this diet of a few hundred calories a day plus some sort of liquid that had protein in it and according to media reports uh there were about 60 deaths that were attributable to this diet and there was uh one the case that i read about was the estate of one of the people who died suing and the problem what, what they were suing over was that um, there were there was a scientist who peer reviewed the book for the publisher and said, you know, I don't agree with the scientific conclusion. I think I don't agree with the doctor that this is correct. And so what the court said in that um, case was that it's fine to have two different scientific conclusions. We, we as judges or we as the government are not going to pick and choose among scientific theories because the point of science is that you, you, you let these theories get tested and there's not any one absolutely correct theory. And um, for the encyclopedia of mushrooms, this, this is a book that um, it's a picture book that 
uh, has all sorts of mushrooms in it. And it's for people who gather mushrooms and eat them. And uh, there was a couple, uh, this, this was, um, I believe in 1988, there was a couple on New Year's Day that was in um, Marin County, California, and they were gathering mushrooms and they say they were relying on the Encyclopedia of Mushrooms and they ended up uh, getting the Amanita death cap mushrooms, which are the deadliest type of mushrooms that exist. But they, they said that they had been using this encyclopedia and it did not inform them of this. And uh, they ate the mushrooms and they both ended up needing liver transplants. They survived, but obviously suffered greatly. And they sued the publisher. And in this case, the court also said there's no liability, um, saying in part that you know, if, if you were to hold a publisher liable for this, uh, for that, that you, you would have to figure out how every possible use of the, in, uh, of the book, and that would really chill speech that uh, I think the court said it was the gentle tug of the first amendment would counsel against this liability because, uh, there's no way to know exactly how someone would use the encyclopedia. Now, the court never actually looked at whether the statement was the statements about the death cap were false. I have a copy of the book that was in print when uh, when, when this occurred, and there is a very lengthy entry about the death cap, and there is a pic there is a picture uh, of it, and uh, perhaps there it looks different depending on where it's growing, perhaps. Uh, it, it wasn't used correctly. Who knows? But uh, it's basically this idea that you that it would chill speech. Uh, you you wouldn't have an encyclopedia of mushrooms if every possible use could lead to negligence liability. Right. If you want to have, and I'm I'm using air quotes here. If you want to have only true books, you'll have far fewer, fewer books. <laughs> So do social media platforms ever use that same kind of defense in their thinking, like, you know, Facebook or Twitter, or now it's called X, right? They can say, do they ever say, like, well, we're just a platform, like, we're not responsible, we don't check everything. Is that the same kind of thinking? So that's partly, um, so for social media platforms, they're a little different. This actually gets to the subject of my first book, uh, The 26 Words That Created the Internet, which is about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. That's a law that Congress passed in 1996. And that effectively says that except for a few, a few types of cases, platforms, any, on, any website or other online platform is not legally responsible for any user produced speech. So they're responsible for the speech they create, but if you want to sue, you sue the person who posted it, not the platform where they posted. And I titled the book that way because it really led to the business models of Facebook and Twitter, because if they were did face liability for every single thing users posted, it, it would have been impossible for them to get off the ground. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that 230 provides even greater protections. But one of, one of the reasons that I wrote this book was that in a lot, of, I, I talk all the time with policymakers about Section 230, and there are a lot, particularly on the left, uh, of policymakers who are really concerned seriously about misinformation. And they would ask, you know, how do we amend Section 230 to deal with misinformation? And what I would tell them is, you could get rid of Section 230, but the First Amendment is still going to protect 
misinformation, a lot of misinformation, because a lot of it is covered by the First Amendment. And that that's really where I, where I saw the miscommunication here. Right. And that which is, I imagine, engendered in the back of your mind somewhere on car rides and stuff, the idea for this book. Because <laughs> it's easy to defend, quote unquote, truth. It's easy to defend good ideas. It's easy to, you know, but it's, it's harder to think about to kind of train your brain as a reader here to kind of get your brain around the idea that like, no, it protects all kinds of other undesirable speech as well. Exactly. So let's move on to this idea of responsibility, because because you talk about people who who say things and and they're not just speaking into the void. That when you say things, you know your words matter. So you ask this question. This is you. Quote: Should a speaker be fully responsible for all harms caused by their falsehoods, or should the burden be on the consumer of the speech? So take us to that question and what's called the self-realization theory of free speech. Yeah, it's a focus on not only the speaker, but on the recipient that, uh, and I think too often the debates, especially about online speech, folk, they, they treat the recipient of speech as sort of this passive recipient who, you know, they, they will do whatever they're told by the speaker and they'll believe everything. And uh, under the self-realization theory, this is this idea that free speech exists to help people, including the recipients, realize their full potential. And part of this is that they're going to be responsible for how they act on the speech. And so th this was really um, set forth in a, a case from more than 100 years ago in New York, where there, the, there was, this was back when Dow Jones had a news ticker that was only available at stockbrokers. And Dow Jones transmitted a false uh, ticker report about a Supreme Court case involving taxes. And there was an investor who made a very bad trade based on this. And what the court basically did was say, you know, we're, we're not, he, he ended up suing Dow Jones and the court said, uh, no, actually the responsibility is with you uh, because you acted on this. And yeah. courts time and again, uh, have said, you know, it's not just about the speaker, it's how people react to it. Yeah, you bring up the Weather Channel in that same chapter, correct? Yeah, so there, there, there have been a few cases involving weather predictions, including this Weather Channel case. There was a guy in uh, Florida who his family at least said he looked at the Weather Channel and they said it was going to be a clear day. He took a boat out with a friend and there was a storm and tragically they both died in the storm. So the family sued the Weather Channel and the court basically said, you know, where the Weather Channel can't be responsible for how people react to what the information that it transmits. And also that weather forecasting is a very imperfect uh, field. Uh -huh. And you and you again, you would not have weather forecasting if the if the Weather Channel or the National Weather Service were always responsible for how people reacted to it. You would have literally, you would have a chilling effect on people talking about how chilly it is. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we've talked about a lot of these different theories of free speech, speech and I want to see how you could apply them to, to some recent, to two recent cases. So I just want to get, these aren't in the book, but I thought it'd be interesting to get sure. your opinion on these based upon the things you talk about in the book. So here's the first one. 2022, there's a decision against Alec Jones for all the horrible things he says about Sandy Hook, right? How does that reflect 
any of the issues that come up in your book. He said terrible things, right? Terrible lies. How does that come up? Yeah. So in the book, I write about how defamation protections are far from absolute. And if you meet the various requirements of the common law and the First Amendment, uh, if you're a plaintiff, you could recover substantial damages in defamation lawsuits. Mm -hmm. And this is a case where the plaintiffs were able to meet meet this bar. And it happens because uh, in particularly egregious cases, and I think that's a good thing. I, I don't think defamation protection should be absolute. And I, very few people do. Um, the, I mean, the, this, the, this is something where, you know, it's, it's, play stupid games, win stupid prizes that you, if you're going to go out and do what Alex Jones did, you will face existential liability. And I mean, I, I think it also shows the limits of defamation in terms of compensating people, because I, I think it's very unlikely that the families will ever recover the full amount that, mm-hmm. that they were awarded. But at the very least, this helps because th- these sorts of cases really penalize the worst type of types of behavior. Right. So it's not absolute. The second one is more recent. This is um, in September of 2023, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the Biden administration violated the First Amendment in the way in which it coerced social media companies to moderate their content. So comment on that. Yeah, so I th- this is a concept known as jawboning, which I address in the book mm-hmm. a little bit, and uh, I, obviously I couldn't address this opinion. This opinion, but um, I, I actually think the Fifth Circuit largely got it right. I, I disagree with some of their analysis, but uh, the idea that I, I think at a certain point when the government really coerces or pressures social media companies to delete speech or kick users off. I think that does rise to the level of a First Amendment violation. Now, I think that at the same time, we need to balance the need for the government to participate in the marketplace of ideas. So um, particularly the district judge, whose opinion was narrowed quite a bit by the Fifth Circuit, I think got a number of things wrong. Um, But I I think that when you have, I mean, the FBI and the White House calling social media companies and telling them, you know, this user is bad or this content is bad, that that raises some First Amendment issues. I think this is not going to be the last word on jawboning because we, I, I think we need much more clarity. I actually would prefer Congress pass a law that really outlines exactly what uh, what the government can and can't do. So it's a clearer playbook because I, I think right now there's there there's not much guidance as to what the government can do. So jawboning is it's not it's when you it's when you su- make very strong suggestions, but you stay on the like on the, a margin on the side of the law. Exactly, but, yeah, yeah. and I mean I I think that we want to strike the right balance because I at, you also want the government to be able to tell companies just flag for them hey there's a Russian disinformation operation be aware of it and you don't want that sort of notice to automatically trigger first amendment liability. But if you have, have the government targeting a particular political opponent of the president or the white house um, and saying, you've got to get rid of all of this because it's bad speech. And uh, the, the, one of the things that got the Biden white house in a lot of trouble was that it was doing this at the same time that it was, 
uh, making statements about how Section 230 needs to be repealed. And that's kind of like, it's kind of like nice section 230 you got there. It would be a shame if you lost it. Right. And so, so I think overall, I agree with the fifth circuit. So it's now one theme that comes up in this conversation today, and certainly through your book is that even politicians aside, it seems very natural for, you know, regular people to hear about some of these cases and say that, you know, the government should quote unquote, do something. And, and in your book, you have a chapter on this or a couple chapters. And you say, that is a very understandable impulse, but it, it's totally misguided. And it, that's the last thing we want. Why? So part of it comes from looking at other countries that have done something. Right. And I look at countries ranging from Russia, authoritarian countries that say, if you refer to what's happening in Ukraine as a war or invasion, you go to prison for 15 years. Also to uh, Western democracies like Europe, where uh, they might have better intentions. But what you see, so Europe has a number of hate speech laws, which most people don't like hate speech, but the problem even with the hate speech laws is that they end up being used by politicians who go after people for saying things that criticize the government. So um, the, the, the problem with saying the, the government must do something and that something has to be regulation is that it's not just going to be used by the people who you want it to be used by because right. they're not going to be in power forever. Once you roll it back, it's hard, it's hard to ever get those protections back. So, I mean, most, most of the do something crowd that I hear from are from people on the left who understandably are very concerned about what happened on January 6th. Mm -hmm. And they're worried about the spread of authoritarianism. And they say, we've got to do something. So January 6th doesn't happen again. And what I say to them is, you know, you sound really concerned about Donald Trump. Uh, you know, he might be president again. So what you're trying to do is give him more power over speech if he were to be president again. Right. Are you concerned about that? Oh, well, no, it's only the good people will use it. And it's like, I, I think it's very short-sighted. Yeah. All right. well, and also, as you pointed out before about Alex Jones and about what you said about Fox getting sued by Dominion, you, you do point out in the book that like liability is might be a better way than government regulation to kind of make sure people stay in line. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that in the extreme cases like Dominion, so I mean, Dominion right. never was fully, it was partially litigated to the point where the judge actually ruled that the statements that Fox made about Dominion were false, which is right. pretty extraordinary. And so all that was really left primarily was actual malice. And then Fox ended up settling for $787 million. And I think that's a case of the system working where, yes, there are very strong protections, but uh, Dominion had probably the strongest defamation case I've ever seen because the, it was just, the, there was so much there. And I think that while, while people might criticize both from both sides might criticize it, I think overall it shows a good balance where yes, we'll protect free speech and you're not going to face liability for making a careless one careless statement. But if you have people time and again, who are, making these false claims after they've been told repeatedly, hey, this is the proof that they're wrong and they keep putting them on, that that could actually lead to some liability. Right, absolutely. So you talk about the use of intermediaries in protecting free speech. And you say, you know, when we talk about the internet, you say it's good to put control in the hands of users. So I wanna give you a hypothetical situation here. So Elon Musk is trying to wrestle with how to moderate posts on, on Twitter, on X, right? And you're in a room with Elon Musk, hypothetically, right? And he looks at you and says, Jeff Kosif, what advice can you give me 
about how to moderate posts in a way that still aligns with the First Amendment? What what should I do? What are you telling uh, me? I would say you don't need to do that because the First Amendment protects a lot of speech that makes a platform unusable. I mean, things like spam. Uh, right. the, and you're, you're a private company and you're not bound by the First Amendment. Now, if the government is pressuring you to remove content, that's a First Amendment issue. But uh, I, I'm kind of an old school First Amendment guy where I, I believe the First Amendment is something that involves the government. And so platforms can have their own moderation policies and they do. And it's this, again, another marketplace idea that if a platform over moderates speech, then it might lose out on the marketplace and might lose users who are sick of having everything blocked. But if it under moderates and it allows all sorts of garbage and spam and hate speech, then users also might say this is filled with trash. I don't want to be there. And that's how it should work. Uh, people mm -hmm. should be able to determine what environment they want to be online and it might be different environments. And I think that's fine. So um, I, I mean, I, I actually think some of his intentions are good in terms of saying, you know, we don't want to block uh, important news and information. And I think that the previous management of Twitter did mess up sometimes in some of their decisions and they admitted it that they have. Yeah. Uh, but content moderation also is really hard. Um, it's You're dealing with a vast amount of content where you have to make split second decisions and even if you make those decisions, you're going to have some people who believe it was correct and others who believe it was incorrect. So you're never going to please everyone. Right. So you can't have, it's, it's interesting. So maybe you can't have a full, you know, kind of a, you know, Adam Smith, like invisible hand moderating yeah. social media. Right. But it's hard to find that balance. Like you said, it's really hard. Exactly. Okay. So you also, another thing that you made me think of that I never, that never occurred to me thinking about the first amendment was that not only are people sometimes accountable for creating false speech, but you could also be accountable for how you react to it. Like your reaction is also part of the story, right? And you have two stories, two parallel stories that I think are fascinating. I, I was, I want you to talk us through them. You have the story of John Lolos and Russell James Peterson. Who are they? Yeah, so um, there are two people who um, were prosecuted for uh, activities on January 6th at the Capitol. They were very low level. It was people who went to the Trump rally and then walked over to the Capitol and uh, they, were, they were not violent they walked but they they did walk in and they and they, they were prosecuted for misdemeanors and they uh, both ended up pleading guilty and at i write about them because i not really as much to compare them because again there was nothing really extraordinary about what they did compared to other january 6 defendants but it was how the judges uh, re gave their rationale and their sentencing and they each got a few weeks. One got a little more than others, a few weeks in prison, but uh, for Lolos, uh, he, he was sentenced first and the judge basically said, you know, you were a pawn. There were people like Trump and his supporters who were giving you misinformation and uh, you, you, you just happened to fall victim to this. And uh, what I say is that's not really the right way to approach this because He's still an adult, and he, even though it was the president and other people who were prominent, it's ultimately his decision. Um, but then for uh, Peterson, when he was sentenced a few weeks later, the judge 
rejected that reasoning. And she said, you know, yes, there was misinformation, but you ultimately are responsible. And, and I'm not going to buy the argument that, uh, that you don't face any lie, any liability because, or you should, you should face less liability because you were believing it. You chose to believe it. You chose to enter the Capitol that day. So I think that her approach is better for dealing with misinformation because it might cause people to think a few times before they right. react to what they see in the media or what they see on the internet and say, okay, how much do I actually believe this? And, yeah. and how do I verify this? Well, like you said before, people aren't just passive consumers. I mean, like you do have a responsibility. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, Lolos gave what his own lawyers, I think, even thought was like an apology that went on for too long. They just wanted him to stop talking. But didn't Peterson, didn't one of the things that got the judge upset with him was that he texted about what he did on January 6th and ended it with LOL, correct? Yes, the yeah. LOL was right. not, the, the judge did not appreciate <laughs> did that. Did not ingratiate <laughs> himself yeah, to the judge, exactly. right? To say, I, you, if you can't say I'm a victim of how I responded to the speech if you if you entered the Capitol and then write LOL about it. Yes. Right, okay. So we talked this whole time about the legal effects of speech, you know, what we are, you know, legally, you know, allowed or not allowed to say or react from a legal standpoint. But, you know, we also live in a world where there are kind of like, you know, these extra legal speech codes that affect who says what and where, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it was somebody said, you know, we're all on campus now, you know, we're at the workplace. Do you see a connection between the issue of, of censoring speech legally and what we see ourselves kind of doing informally sometimes? Like, is, is free speech in trouble? Is, should we be concerned or not? Or should we all relax? Or what do you think? Yeah, so... I, I think there there's differences between sort of uh, the ability to say whatever you want and the ability to say what you want without the government prosecuting you or a court imposing liability. So um, I I think that the and and this comes down to this the issues of cancel culture and so forth and. I, I, I worry that they get conflated and when they get conflated, uh, the actual true first amendment values are minimized. So, um, I do think that campuses should be laboratories where there is free speech. I also think that in, in a true marketplace of ideas, people should be free to criticize that speech. Mm -hmm. So I, I so, so I, I think that uh, too, too often when people complain about cancel culture, what they're really saying is I should be able to say whatever I want and not get any criticism for that. And that's mm -hmm. not how it works. Right. Uh, if you, you should be able to say what you want outside of a few things that are not protected, um, but you also need to deal with the consequences of that. Right. So cancel culture could be the market reacting to what you're exactly. saying. It's exactly what it is, right? So it's not it's not a nefarious kind of thing. It's this is what happens, you know, and and different and and the marketplace will react to different um speech at different points in time. Exactly. And that that's the marketplace working. So right. uh so yeah, I, I I worry though that we're and part of the reason I wrote this was I worry that in in all of these debates we're actually forgetting about the real core first amendment protections. Right. Right. 
So last question. I, I want to read a passage um, from Liar in a Crowded Theater, and I want to get your reaction. So here it is. I just want to get your reaction to this, this passage you wrote. This is you talking about Trump and the journalists he doesn't like. Here it is. Jeff Kossoff says, quote, Trump could not send journalists or social media commentators to prison just because they have criticized him. This is a feature of the U.S. legal system that we often take for granted, but it is also something that we gradually erode with sensorial proposals that address the problems of today without considering the issue of tomorrow. So I wrote that in response to many of the people who I've talked with over the past few years. Uh, again, this is a lot of people primarily on the left um, who basically say, well, we trust the people in power. Uh, and so we can tell them they can police misinformation. And I point to them, we're very fortunate to live in a country where prosecuting journalists or people who dissent um, does not happen. And that it's actually not the default option in most of the world, that in most of the world there you are, the government can do that. And so when, when people get so worried about, you know, that particularly what happened during the Trump administration, I mean, he, he called a lot of things fake news and it was in response. He actually took it from people who were criticizing misinformation uh, that was on the internet in the 2016 elections. And he kind of, he, he, he took ownership of the term fake news and called CNN fake news and pretty much anything that uh, criticized him, he called fake news. And, you know, I think that I, I, as a former journalist, it's not something I like very much, but I also was not as terrified as many other people because we have the first amendment protections. Um, I would be much more terrified if we did not have those First Amendment protections. And um, I, I was on a panel with a congressional staffer last year who was trying to justify her boss's proposal to reduce, uh, to, to impose some liability for misinformation. And it would have given the executive branch complete authority to do that. And I said, well, don't you worry about it being misused? And she said, well, no, Joe Biden is president. She was a Democratic staffer. And I said, well, you know, I, I, I believe that he's healthy, but he's also not going to be president forever. Eventually, we will have a new president. Oh, well, she kind of brushed that off. And so right. that's the sort of thing that I'm responding to. Your point is you can't, you can't kick the free speech can down the road. Yeah, exactly. And, say, and that's that's what we don't want to do. So, Jeff Kossoff, it has been great talking with you today. Liar in a Crowded Theater, Freedom of Speech in a World of Misinformation is published by Johns Hopkins University Press. It's available wherever books are sold. It is compelling, it's provoking, and it's a terrific read. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thanks so much.